prepare before the video was to pray for our missionaries who serve in strange and dangerous places, and so many of them do. And um, if you've ever been to Brooklyn, you know that that's one of those places as well. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening. My name is Roger, as I've been introduced. I'm your director of missions. Not so new anymore, but still here and uh, looking forward to the opportunity of sharing God's word with you tonight. I appreciate Brother John uh, calling on me. I was asked if I could be here for the day, but I had a commitment this morning to Greenbrier Road, uh, who is celebrating their 40th anniversary, and they had a great event. Lots of people today. I think they were very pleased with the uh, outcome of the day, but I was free this evening, so Brother John split up the day. You heard Brother Gary this morning. Some of you did, and, and me tonight. At least I hope you hear me tonight. Uh, I learned a long time ago, just because I'm talking doesn't necessarily mean people are listening. So <laughs> I hope you're listening. I want us to turn in God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I'm going to preach a very, very familiar passage and a very familiar story. But I want to tell you that I'm doing this because God has... Uh, spoken to me in a new and a fresh way, given me some understanding about the life of David, speaking into my own heart, and I saw things that I'd never seen before and thought things about David I'd never thought before. I think some discoveries that may be encouraging and helpful to you as well. Uh, I want to talk under the title tonight, The Making of a Man of God. Really, to be fair to all of us, men and women, The Making of a Person of God. And if you listen to the sermon, you'll find that it kind of unfolds and unpacks some of the processes and problems and challenges that we go through in our development as Christians. And we are, brothers and sisters, continually in the process of developing. We're continually in the process of growing. If there's anyone here tonight who feels that you have arrived in your Christian experience, and there's no further to go, no more to know, and we need to have a little chat afterwards because none of us ever really get there. As long as we're on terra firma, this earth, and in this life, there's room to go on with God, deeper with God, and to know Him more and more and better and better. Chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, verse 48. And I'm reading just a portion. There's, this story covers a big portion of Scripture. And if I were to announce all of that, you'd think, oh my, we'll be here forever. But we're not. We're taking this little part here. And it was so when the Philistine arose and came near to David, that David hastened and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Then David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and he slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead so that the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in David's hand. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out, of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. We, hear, we see here the story of the young giant slayer. When we read the broader context of 
this story we find that previously David had announced that he had killed a bear, he had killed a lion, and now he has killed a giant. This man, this man, this young man has obviously um, some formidable uh, courage and ability to face the enemy, to deal with the enemy, to defeat the enemy. But when we began to investigate this time and place in David's life, we discover that he was a teenage boy, probably 16 or 17 years of age. He was described by Jesse and looked upon by Saul as a wimp. And by his appearance would never have given the idea that he could be a man of such courage and such strength. 16, 17, could have been 18, but probably was around 17 years of age when all of this occurred. Now, when I read something like that, and I didn't do it initially, I've begun this investigation just in recent months, really to dig down deeper into David's life and to think about, to, to really stop and to think of. Now, I may be saying some things tonight that some of you have thought about many times before. And if you have, good for you. I'm proud for you. But I've seen some things that I think can help, I know can help me and hopefully can help you. The question, all, when we study the Bible, we need to be asking questions of the text. And, and that, at least that's the way I think is helpful. It's helpful for me when I'm reading the Word of God to talk to it and let it talk to me. So I start asking questions. How did David get to this place in his life at such a young age? What were the circumstances of his life? The first point that I want to bring tonight is just to look at what I call the topography of David's life. The topography of David's life. We began to look at where he was, his setting, his circumstances, his home, his family, all that is around him. Because we're talking about the making of a person, a man, a woman of God. So we go into his environment. We go into his life. We go into his home. In fact, we go into his home in the 16th uh, chapter of 1 Samuel. And you'll need to turn to this because it's right where we are and looking at this right now. Because we go back and we go into the home. What's going on in David's home? What is going on there? Now this may surprise you. It surprised me. I didn't find what I thought I might find when I began to ask those questions. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? This is verse 1 of chapter 16. Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go... I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. The next king of Israel is in the house of Jesse. The greatest king of Israel is now residing in the house of Jesse. I want you to see what happens when Samuel arrives? He announces to Jesse why he's there. It, uh, the plan is announced, and, and Jesse is asked to summon his sons. And he begins to summon his sons. And there are seven sons. Eliab is first. You will find him in verse 8. And when he came, uh, so it was when they came that he looked on Eliab, Eli, Eliab, 
and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. Now this is Samuel talking. Surely this is the one, the oldest one. And God rejected Eliab and said, No, it is not Eliab. Verse 9, Abinadab is brought before uh, Samuel. And, and again, he's thinking, Is this the one? And God says, No, this is not the one. And then uh, Shammah was brought before uh, Samuel in verse 9, and he is not the one. So we find one after one, one after the other, these sons of Jesse being brought before Samuel. Something is happening here. Something quite remarkable is happening here because we're, we're beginning to see now some insight into David's home life, into his circumstances, into his environment. Because Jesse, Samuel has to ask Jesse, are these all, are these all of your sons? He has to ask that. It is not that when you get to the end of six and then the seven, is there a, another son automatically announced? He has to inquire, are there more boys? Do you have other sons? That question, having to be asked, says something about Jesse's attitude toward David, his view of David, his assessment of David. And then he says to Samuel, no, I have another boy. I have another son. He's just a wee lad. He's out there somewhere on the hillsides watching over the sheep. I want to ask you tonight, please think with me about these questions. Have you ever felt that you were too insignificant to be used by God? Have you ever felt that you were on the end of the line when it came to being chosen for the position that you might have had in mind and at your heart? Here David is. I want to read a word from Alexander McLaren. Alexander McLaren is a Scottish divine of ages gone by, days gone by, one of the great preachers of his time. But in his commentary and his commentary on this passage, Dr. Alexander McLaren says, Samuel is now bewildered. God had said that the next king would be among Jesse's boys. Are these seven all your boys? The answer is no, Jesse said. McLaren, now I want to say what McLaren said about this. It is a sobering observation. Alexander McLaren said of Jesse's response regarding, no, no, I do have one more, but not of much significance. Here's what McLaren said. God seldom shows us his choice at first. And both in thought and practice, we get to the precious and to the true by the process of exclusion. Having often to reject seven before we find in the sum all but forgotten eight, that which we seek. Listen to this. David's insignificance in Jesse's eyes was such that his father would never have remembered his existence but for the question of Samuel. In other words, David was not even on his own daddy's 
radar. Some of you may be wondering already, well, what is the significance of this? Remember the theme of this sermon, the making of a person of God. We need a leg up sometimes, don't we? When we think of those who have risen to what we might consider the higher levels of Christian service, those men and women whom we respect that have qualities of life that we admire and even envy, we oftentimes assume that they were incubated in some kind of environment that would just produce people like that without ever really fully understanding that they may have come from the most difficult environment imaginable. This is a sobering thing to me. Jesse would not have even thought of David had it not been for Samuel's question. Do you have another son? I want to show you some of the challenges David faced right at the beginning of his process of becoming the greatest king in Israel. We see, first of all, we've been talking about it, but we see Jesse's in consideration of his own son. I have one son, Sandra and I have one son. He just turned 40 years old uh, last week. One son. When we were younger parents, I think like a lot of younger parents, we stayed tuned in a great deal to uh, James Dobson, Focus on the Family. Sandra and I both grew up in homes that, that didn't really provide some of the tools that you need to know how to, to be a father, to be a mother. You know, the best, the best help that a young mother can have is to have a godly mother who has shown her how to be a mother. And the best help that a young father can have is to have a godly father who has shown him how to be a godly father. How to love his wife, how to love his children. So we turned to James Dobson. And I heard a statement that so riveted me, I've never forgotten it. You already know it, I'm just reminding you. But James Dobson said something that was quite strange to my thinking when it first came through my mind. And then I began to embrace it and to see the profound truth of it. He said the father's role in the life of his child or his children is so significant. For you see that a child begins to develop and to form his or her views of Father God through their view of their earthly father. And the relationship that a child has with his earthly father, her earthly father, is essentially a reflection of the relationship they will have with Heavenly Father. If they have an earthly father that is difficult, is harsh, is unloving, unaffectionate, unkind, and cruel, they're going to see God as a God who is unloving, unkind, unaffectionate, and cruel. If they have a father that is difficult to approach and holds them at a distance and never says, I love you, they're going to feel that God is a father who is very difficult to get into his presence. But you turn that around and have a father 
that is loving and kind, sweet, and accessible. That child will begin, as he learns about Heavenly Father, have a view of God in that way. Well, if that is true, and I believe it is true, I don't question that statement one bit, and I think if you'll analyze it even in the context of your own experience, you'll say, I can see it even in my own life. Well, I wonder how David felt. He's forming his views of the God that he's seeing out there on those hillsides as he lifts his eyes toward the heavens as he worships. What is he thinking? We see Jesse's in consideration of David. What kind of impact would this have on a boy? When I was growing up, I was a runt. Now, that's difficult for you to believe now, but I was. I was a little guy. I was a, uh, what's the word, scrawny little guy. I was backward. I was shy. I was introvert. I was a lot of things that made it difficult to mix and mingle. Where I went to school, this was before... P.E., we just had recess. Some of you remember just recess. And the teachers could give us, the boys, a ball and a bat and say, go out and have recess. And that was, and I can even remember before the ball and the bat. But I remember my earliest memories of this time was when the boys would run out on the field and the girls would go do their thing, but the guys would begin to choose up a team because we had a softball and we had a bat. We were going to play ball. And um, I would stand there waiting. I didn't know how to play. Nobody had ever taught me how to play. Didn't know a thing about it. And I think they knew that. Obviously they knew that. Because when it got right down, when, when you came to the seven, I was number eight. I will tell you what happened, how bad it was. They'd take... Choose you, choose you, choose you, choose you. And I'd be the last guy standing. And the team that was to choose next went and got a girl. (laughs) Instead of asking me to be on the team. Now, I I kind of added that to there. I was trying to see if you were awake. But um, it was really almost that bad. But I just think about this. I see the insolence of his brothers in this text in chapter 17 when we find Jesse is telling his, his uh, other boys to go, or Je- uh, David to take food to his brothers who are uh, in Saul's army ready to go to battle for, uh, against uh, the Philistines and against Goliath. Uh, Jesse said, to take, you need to take them some food. And in chapter 28, uh, chapter 17, verse 28 when he got up there to his brothers, uh, they began to look down upon him. They said, why, why have you even come here? And what, what did you do with those few sheep? With whom have you left those few? Now, the word few is not a throwaway word. You might say, well, they could have just said, well, with whom did you leave your sheep? They had to put that subtle insult. With whom did you leave those few sheep. David even replies as a little brother would, what what have I done? What have I done to you? What what have I done to deserve this kind of of insolence and insult? Uh, 
we're, we're talking about the pathway David traveled to get to the place that we have seen him in the Word of God as the great man of God. It was not an easy path. Well, then he comes to Saul. Word goes to Saul. Uh, Jesse's got a, another son that's delivered some groceries up there, and he says he has no fear of Goliath, and he'd be quite willing to go down and fight him. Well, uh, David is taken into the presence of Saul, and in verse uh, 33, Saul says something like this. He says, you, you're, you're not a man. You're just a boy. An attitude of dismissiveness. Are, are you beginning to see the picture now of, of where da the path David is traveling? Sometimes when we look at Christians who impress us with their character, with the depth of their strength, with their courage with their spiritual maturity, with their Christ-likeness. I'm impressed by Christians like that. In fact, it stirs up in me a hunger to know what they know, to experience what they're experiencing. If somebody's gone further down the road of this Christian pilgrimage than I've gone, if they've reached levels and heights that I've not yet reached, I want to know, how did you get there? What way did you take? What was the path? What is the path? What shall I... Expect to encounter along the way. For there should be a desire in each of our hearts tonight to become more and more like Christ every day, every day of our lives. But when we began to travel that journey, we find that it's not such an easy journey. David was not a superman. He was not a superhuman. He was not extra celestial. He wasn't imported from somewhere else. He was made of the same stuff as you and I are made. But he knew how to become a man of God. So let's answer that question. How did he get there? Well, this whole scope of Scripture answers that too. I'll talk just for a moment or two about the origin of David's courage. Where did it come from? David's testimony when he went before Saul, he, he said, When I was out watching my father's sheep, uh, the lion and the bear came. They, they took sheep, tried to take a sheep, a lamb, from my flock. But I went after them. And I s slew the lion. And I slew the bear. I killed the lion. And I killed the bear. And David now begins to open up from his own heart so we can see down in the interior of his life as he talks to Saul we're beginning to get some ray of light on what it is that has begun this process in David's life of becoming a man of God and we find key key to this part of his life is the time that he has spent in a solitary place yes he may have been there because his father saw no value in him doing anything else. Saw that he was, felt that he was not worthy of doing anything else. So he stuck him on the backside of a hill to watch a few sheep. But it was there. That became a sanctuary for David to spend hours and days at a time in the presence of God and getting to know his God and worshiping his God and singing these songs to God and writing these hymns to God. It was in the solitary place. It wasn't in a seminary, it wasn't in a classroom, 
Wasn't even in his home, unfortunately. It was out there in the solitary place. And let me tell you something. When I have met those spiritual giants that we're talking about, and not even giants, it's even unfair because that's, that makes us feel like, well, I can never be a giant. Well, let's just say, let's be the best we can be for God. Let's be all we can be for God. Let's be what God has given us the potential to be. And this is David. Where does it start? What, what is the impetus of that? What is at the core of the heart of becoming that kind of person? Spending time alone with God. The solitary place. The solitary place. It's so important. More than we understand. He learned that the Lord was his shepherd. He learned that there. He learned that the Lord watches over his flock there. He learned to put his hope in the word of God there. But in the few minutes that remain, I want to mention four aspects of David's life that were the building blocks of him becoming a mighty man of God. Number one, he was sanctified. And by that, I want us to see that over in the 16th chapter again in verse 13, when Jesse, when, when Samuel came to David and God said, this is the one... Um, God, God said, this, this is the one, this is the future king of Israel. Now, we could, we could debate his age. He was no older than 18. I think he was around 17. But he was anointed with the oil of the prophet. That means he was, a, he was sanctified. He was set apart. Which means that it was 13 or 14 years later before he became the king of Israel. From the time Samuel anointed him until the time he occupied the throne as the king of Israel, some 14 years passed. But what had happened was that God had set him apart for a purpose. And when God sets you apart for a purpose, God continues to do that work in you to fulfill the purpose for which he has set you apart. You say, have I been anointed? Have I, have I been sanctified? Yes. At the moment that you said to Jesus, I am a sinner, and I confess my sin to you, and I acknowledge that I need to be forgiven. I repent of my sin. Lord Jesus, would you come into my heart and take your place as Lord of my life and be my Lord and Savior. Something remarkable happens. Yes, salvation happens. We're born again, but in that same moment, a process began, begins that is called sanctification. We are sanctified, and that process continues right on through life. We are set apart unto God. I'm so happy to know that what God sets aside for His use and for His purpose, for His eternal purposes, He will see through. David is a chosen instrument, a set-apart instrument, and so are you. So are you. And I would ask tonight that each of us would consider if we're on course, if we're on target, if we're yielding to that process in a way that God is doing what he longs to do in us. The second thing that I would say that David discovered was not only that he was sanctified, he understood that anointing of the oil and what it symbolized that he was being put aside until the appropriate time to be used by God. He was set aside. Now he belongs to God. He was sanctified. But then he discovered 
David discovered his significance in God. This is so important. Uh, He didn't discover his um, significance in his designer jeans. He didn't discover his significance in the kind of car he drove. He didn't discover his significance in the kind of house he lived. He didn't discover his significance in his position in the world. He discovered his significance in God. His significance did not begin when he occupied the throne of Israel, when he had draped around him the royal robes of the king. David, when he was still wearing the tattered clothes of a farm boy, tending those few sheep, stood before his heavenly father with a sense of knowing his significance in God. Ladies and gentlemen, is it true of you? I know it's often true of me that I can get my eyes off the proper sources of affirmation of significance. When you turn to Psalm 139, you will read a heading above that psalm. Do you know what it says? A psalm of David. Listen to what he said. Just a portion of it. It's a long psalm. But in Psalm 139, David said to God, You formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows right well. How precious also are your thoughts of me, O God. How great is the sum of them. That was, that was David's discovery on a hillside as a young man watching a flock of sheep. He entered into an understanding that God had made him. And he belonged to God. His significance was found there. David, our music minister, likes these old songs, and so do I. I love them. But David, I can just hear him. If I could sing, I would. But if I did, you would leave. So I'll just say the words. He was singing something like, I'm a child of the king. I'm a child of the king. The royal blood now flows through my veins. I'm a child of of the king. Isn't that wonderful? You can sing that song tonight. You're a child of the king. Your significance is found there. Number three, we're talking about things that were building blocks in David's life. He was sanctified he, by the Lord himself. He, was, he found his significance in the Lord. He was sent by God. David was sent. He was sent by Jesse, but this is God sending him up to his brothers. He was sent by Saul to face Goliath. He was sent. But this is God behind the scenes, sending, sending, sending. Could I remind us tonight that what God sends us to do, He equips us to do. God never gives you an assignment, nor me, nor you. Does He give an assignment without giving you everything that's required to do that assignment? That's one of the great joys and serving the Lord. And sometimes he asks some big stuff, and you think, man, I could never do that. But the real joy is if he asks you to do it, he's going to equip you to do it. Then you get the joy of seeing yourself involved in a God thing that's so far beyond yourself, you just have to say, God did that, I couldn't do that. That's exactly what God wants you to say anyway. God's big enough to take care of any assignment he gives you. He was sent by God. And there's one more thing, if I can find it. He was sustained by the Word of God. 
he spent time in the Word of God. And uh, I'll illustrate this from 1 Samuel 17, verse 40, when David took his staff in his hand. He's going down to see Goliath now, and he goes and he picks up five stones from the brook and puts them in his shepherd's bag in a pouch. These five pebbles. Uh, it was Dr. Alan Redpath that made this observation of how these five stones represented the Word of God. And by the way, people ask, why did, is this a lack of faith? Did David not think he could get him with the first shot? Oh, he didn't. He never questioned his, his um, marksmanship with a sling. But what he knew was that Goliath had four sons who could possibly be at dad's defense. You say, where on earth do you get that? Well, I'll let you read it for yourself. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 15 through 22. There were four or more. There could have been five instead of one. So David just picks up a stone for each one. Now, I know there's a bit of speculation on that kind of talk, but nonetheless, uh, Goliath did have four sons, according to the text in 2 Samuel. But here's what Redpath says. He takes these stones and he goes to Psalm 23. Now, if you take notes, if you're writing down, you may want to jot these. I'm going to go through them closely, and it's the last thing I'll do, so we'll be finished with this. But Alan Redpath applies these five stones to the 23rd Psalm. He says the first stone, the first stone placed in David's pouch was a believing heart. Based on Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd. I know him. I believe in Him. I rest in Him. I'm secure in Him. The Lord is my shepherd. That's stone number one. Stone number two, a quiet heart. He makes me to lie down in green pastures and He leads me beside the still waters. That's stone number two. A quiet heart. A quiet heart is needed for strength. A quiet heart. Folks, I, I, I'm just, let me just say parenthetically before we move on, I, I believe one of the great detriments to our Christian life today is noise. Noise. It is so difficult in the culture in which we live to hear the voice of God. And, and one of the problems we're facing now is that we don't want to be quiet even when we have time to be quiet. One of the first things we do when we go into an empty house is turn something on that makes noise. It seems that we don't want to be quiet. David learned the value of quietness as a shepherd, and he maintained that appreciation for quietness throughout his life. He makes me to lie down in the green pastures, and he leads me beside the still water. That's the quiet place. Redpath says stone number three is a pure heart. That's Psalm 23 and verse 3. He leads me in the paths of righteousness. Stone number three is a pure heart. Stone number four, or at least the verse representing stone number four is verse four of Psalm 23. I will fear no evil. This is a confident heart. A confident heart. And the fifth stone is a grateful heart. My cup runs over. My cup runs over. A believing heart. A quiet heart. A pure heart confident heart, a grateful heart. Ladies when I, and gentlemen, when our, when our shepherd's pouch 
is supplied with these five stones, we can be victorious in our lives each and every day. A believing heart, a quiet heart, a pure heart, a confident heart, and a grateful heart. David walks out onto this place to face a giant, a place that becomes a platform for him to display not himself, but his God. And he said to Goliath, I come before you today, not with a sword and not with a spear, but with a sling. And if I could paraphrase, he says to the giant, and when the day is over, all will know that God is God in Israel. And God, this world is looking at you and me tonight. We're on the world stage. And they're longing to see, not us, but God. And some of the difficulties that you may go through, and that I may go through, that we may even fuss about and complain about, could very well be the platform upon which God has placed you so you can reveal to that watching world the power and the glory of your God. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you to take the words spoken tonight and apply them to our hearts. Lord, may we not soon forget some of the truths that the scriptures have revealed to us that we might find our own way, our own way in this pilgrimage to becoming a man, a woman of God. Thank you for this special time to be in the house of God tonight to sing the great songs of our faith and to spend a few moments in the word of God. We thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we're going to sing I Surrender All. And as we sing that hymn, I'm happy to stand down to the front here as in the place of your pastor, Brother John, to pray with anyone who may need prayer or to to deal initially anyway with any other decision that may need to be made. So don't feel that the invitation is uh, null and void tonight. It's open and you have an opportunity.